good morning, everybody. It is uh, wonderful to be with you and uh, really excited about this morning. Although I've been told from the eight that this is a message you both need to hear and don't want to hear. So it's like you always get chucked one of those every now and then, you know. So um, if you if you weren't here last week Sunday, we started a, a, a mini series and we're dealing with the topic of eschatology, and that's just a big fancy word uh, to say end times things. So how God is going to wrap all of time up, what's going to happen. Uh, what's it going to be like when he comes? Is it going to be a thousand-year rule and reign um, of Jesus on the earth? Is it a literal thousand years? Is it a metaphorical thousand years? Is there even a thousand years? Are we in the thousand years? Or is it going to be a rapture? Isn't there not, is there not going to be a rapture? All of that sort of stuff um, is about, it's like end times theology, signs, mark of the beast, all that sort of stuff is all wrapped up in eschatology. And um, We've been asked to speak about it quite a bit, and so Brad did a really good job last week. If you missed it, you need to go and listen to that. It was recorded. It's online. And then Dr. Lindsay Rehnquist yesterday uh, did a session where he unpacked really technically what those different positions believe about certain things, and he tied that to how that relates to what's happening in Israel now. Uh, And that is also online. You can also go and watch that. And so there are some big words that have been part of this series, but I have the opportunity of wrapping it up and not really focusing much on the big words, but, but really calling us to understand how it is that we can still be unified together despite our different beliefs when it comes to eschatology or how the end times are going to happen. And so uh, every now and then we, 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 we get together as pastors and we plan a series and then we decide to add titles to the different messages and not often do the titles we make up and come up with in those uh, meetings get to the screen. But, but this one did and I want to honor Brad for this. So if you want to know who came up with the title for this message, it's Brad. Today we're speaking about how to be lacquer or being lacquer with our different eschatology. Uh, so decided that every now and then some of the craziness from the meeting has to come out into the actual message. And so that's Brad's title. So I'm not um, in any way plagiarizing, uh, just giving him credit where credit's due. But this really is the topic of this message. But before we dive into it, I just want to share a quick story. Um, I have a son, David, who turned 10 the other day. And despite my very best efforts, David loves football, uh, soccer. Right? He absolutely loves it. And no matter how much I try and steer him away from it, uh, he just gets more impassioned for it. And so as a dad, I've just decided to to let it go, uh, and I'll just continue to pray. Uh, but, but because he's enjoyed soccer, I've decided that as a father, I'm going to try my best to immerse myself in the soccer world and try and appreciate football and try and appreciate the game and try and appreciate the different teams and get my head around the Premier League and the Bundesliga and the this league and the that league and the this thing. And the more I've tried to do that, the more I've been repulsed <laughs> and repelled. Um, and and it, it, this is the type of thing that happens. I went over to the UK. I've just come back from a visit to the UK and uh, people were asking me there about my family. And I was telling them about David because they're big into football there. You can't call it soccer, otherwise you'd get chastised. But football, and I was telling them about how passionate he is. And they were like, well, whatever you do, don't make him support this team or this team. You just don't do that. See, in, in Scotland, they have these two teams that are actually like relatively good. There's the Celtics, and then there's the Rangers. But, but the problem is, <laughs> the Celtics originated from Ireland, and they represented the Catholic Church. The Catholics got behind them. And then the Rangers, uh, they, they were like supported by the Protestant church and Protestants. And, and, and so when they came together, it, was not, it wasn't about football. It, it, it was about how much they hated each other. 
and, and it turned into one big brawl in Barney. That's really what happened. And so it, it got to the point where people were actually scared for their lives. And I was told, you just don't do that. You support an average terrible team called the Partick Thistles, and that way you're safe. So my options are be disunified or be Geneva and support a terrible team. All right? Those are my options. And so football is, I've been really put off by it because of the sort of behavior and the disrespect that you see on the field for each other and the refs and the faking of being hurt and all that sort of stuff. It just leaves a sour taste in my mouth. And so the football world has lost me. Right? They have not lost my son, but he's yet to be converted. Right? But I use this as an analogy because it's very similar to what happens in the church. You see, someone who f- loves football will come and say to me, no, 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 but those are different teams. Oh, that's the culture off the field. Football itself is a beautiful game. It's the beautiful game. And I'm like, I don't care. If I have to support that and choose a team where if I choose wrong, I might lose my life, I want nothing to do with the sport. And so often in the church this happens. We create divisions. We separate over stupid issues. We take minor theological differences with minor theological topics and we create them and we make them massive. We put them up on a pedestal like Brad said last week. And eschatology is one of those things. How the world is going to end, what Jesus is going to do, and what the specifics of our eschatology say compared to somebody else's will often separate us from them to the point where we disfellowship. And here's the problem. At the same time that that's happening, we're trying to call people who are interested in the sport of Christianity to come in and have a look and partake and meet Jesus, and they're going, I want nothing to do with it. If coming into the church means I have to choose a side, if coming to the church means that I have to either be in this camp or this camp or this camp, I don't want to even play the sport. I want, I want nothing to do with that. And we sit here thinking that as we pontificate to one another and as we exalt one theological difference over the next, that we're doing a great job for the kingdom. The truth is we're actually not extending the kingdom at all. We're doing the enemy's work. And so eschatology is one of those things that we've exalted to a higher place. And that's not to say it's not important. Brad touched on this last week. It is important. Studying theology is important. It has its place. But our differences when it comes to our different views, the specifics of our differences, are certainly not worth disunifying over. And more to the point, they are not worth losing our witness over. And again, this might not be happening in our church, Connect. But it's happening in the church. And so we need to talk about this. God's word speaks into it. But but before we get into that, I, I do just want to say this. There's just one caveat. The Bible does say we need to hold two things in tension. The one is unity. Ephesians chapter 3, it says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So unity is a must. But it also says you must hold correct theology in tension with unity. Paul says, Titus says in chapter 2 verse 1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So we need to hold sound doctrine and we need to hold unity Both must be maintained and affirmed. And there certainly are times where we will disfellowship over false teaching. And we will disfellowship because people have strayed away from the core tenets of the faith. This doesn't mean we never disfellowship. There are times where we need to. And that's where closed-handed, salvific, really important doctrines get twisted or taught incorrectly. And people insist on teaching them. In other words, we don't seek unity at the price where the fundamental truths of the gospel are jettisoned or kicked out. 
Charles Spurgeon said this once. He said, to pursue unity at the expense of truth is treason to the Lord Jesus Christ. So to pursue unity at the expense of truth is treason to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul, writing to to Timothy in 1 Timothy, says this. He says, the Spirit clearly says that in latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of the Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious malicious talk, evil suspicion, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind, who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Man, that sounds like the world we live in. But you, man of God, flee from all of this. Paul doesn't say to him, go unify yourself with him and make amends. It's like, no, flee. Run away from this. And pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. So there are times we need to disfellowship. There are times we need to abandon so-called Christian unity for the sake of the gospel. But that is so often not the case. So that's the caveat. The thing that happens most of the time is we disfellowship over insignificant stuff or lesser doctrinal issues. Often it's just a matter of about getting along with other believers and having a different take on various logical issues, but loving people despite those differences. Often it's about being mature. It's about overcoming your desire to be right and allowing space for you to be wrong and for others to be wrong, but at the same time share the same core doctrinal truths. Believers are far too prone to cause division and discord over minor doctrines and beliefs which should not cause conflict at all. There are all sorts of secondary issues that we can have different beliefs on, and they're not too hard to find in the Scriptures. The core tenets of our faith are easy to find, and I love the Nicene Creed, and there's the Apostles' Creed, but the Nicene Creed, these guys got together, and they summed up the core doctrinal truths that make Christianity what it is. And I'm going to read that, and I wish we had it painted on our walls. Um, in my home and in the church, but I think it's beautiful. Here's, here's what the Nicene Creed is. These are core, central, fundamental beliefs about the Christian faith. Deviation from this means heresy, and it means not Christian. But this is what it says. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, True God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one universal, one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. Those are the core tenets of our faith summed up in a creed. You can go and read the Apostles' Creed. It's very similar to that. They add one or two extra things which are also core. 
But you want to know what the core beliefs are of Scripture or of the faith, you get to Scripture and they're quite easy to find. So we abandon Christian unity when these things are broken. But so often we find ourselves abandoning, abandoning unity over silly things like our differences in eschatological views. I, um, I find that uh, in our church, we, we have lots of amillennialists. If you don't know what that means, listen to Dr. Lindsay. We have premillennialists, postmillennialists, and then you have people like me who are panmillennialists. And we've joked about this often. It just means that I believe all things are going to pan out in the end. Right? And so that doesn't, mean, that doesn't mean that I don't think it's important. It doesn't mean that I don't think it's significant, a doctrine to go look into. But I don't think it's worth dividing over because the things that we share in common with our different views are more important than the things that separate us. But we like to focus and major on the things that don't. We like to major on the minors, and we like to minor on the majors, often in Christianity. I'm going to read an extract. I don't often do this. I don't like doing it because I think Jesus needs to speak and the Word needs to speak. But I, I, I came across a quote uh, from uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who also cites Augustine in his quote. And he speaks directly into this issue. He paints a picture of the problem. And uh, his frustration is very evident when you read this. But this is what he says. He said, in standing fast in the faith, if we are not animated by the spirit of love, we may not always differentiate, as we should, between faith in its essence and certain peculiar interpretations and expositions of our own. Here is a theme which might very easily occupy our minds on many occasions. There is nothing so tragic, I sometimes think, in certain circles as the way in which men fail to differentiate between that which is of the essence of the faith and certain other matters about which there can be no certainty. You cannot, I am told, be a member of the World Fundamentalist Association unless you believe in the pre-millennial return of the Lord. And if you happen to be a post-millenarian, you cannot be a Christian. And if you are an a-millenarian, you are just unspeakable. There you have an illustration of the most of the mo- of the importance of the differentiating between the essence of the faith and the interpretation of a particular matter about which there has always been a difference of opinion. Men separate from each other about matters of that nature, where there is no certainty, where there can be no certainty, though the return of the Lord is certain. You can decide who is right, whether those who hold to the premillennial position or those who hold to the postmillennial view. Can you decide? He says, I can mention great names on both sides, equally expert theologians. Surely these are matters where there can be a legitimate difference of opinion. Let us bear in mind the adage, and this is where he quotes Augustine, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity. Therefore stand fast in the faith. Yes, but in the spirit of love. His frustration was the same. Our frustration is the same. We see divisions in the church because people hold to differences and separate and form cliques and separate groups and almost and sometimes literally do call other people non-believers because they are different to you in non-essential doctrinal beliefs. So how do we overcome this? Church, I think we need to understand God's call on us and the biblical call to pursue unity. There is a call to unity all the time, and unity trumps our insignificant differences. The Bible is rich with reference to teaching about unity. It speaks of unity in the family. It speaks of unity in the church. It speaks of unity with each other. One of the most profound scriptures on unity is found in Psalm 133, verse 1. And here the psalmist writes, and he says this, 
Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. This verse sets the tone for how we should feel about unity. For what unity is, it's a gift from God. It is something that is good. It is something that is pleasant. It is something that needs to be desired and pursued almost at all costs. In the biblical sense, unity is not merely about conformity and uniformity. Biblical unity is about harmony and mutual respect. Biblical unity is about loving each other despite our insignificant differences. No matter how important you think the difference is that you have with another believer, if it's not salvific, if it's not one of the core tenets of our faith, if it's not mentioned in the Nicene Apostles' Creed, it's probably an insignificant difference that you have with them when it comes to the kingdom. So as Christians and as a church, it's not an option for us as to whether we will strive for unity or not. We are mandated to strive for unity. And I think so often we put more stumbling blocks in front of ourselves than we are supposed to, or that should be there. And the enemy just jumps on board and he adds to the number of hurdles we've got to jump over before we experience this unity in Jesus, where it's not about all thinking the same and all believing the same. With, God, with regards to every doctrine, but it's about understanding that we're different. It's about unity in diversity. It's about celebrating who we are with our different gifts, our different talents, and our different interpretations around lesser doctrines. It's this unity that we have with each other that expresses or manifests the presence of the kingdom of God in a dark and dying world. Here's what Jesus says in John chapter 17, verse 21. Well, he's praying for his followers. He's praying for us. And this is what he prays to the Father and asks the Father. I pray, Lord, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This verse expresses a number of important truths. One, we are unified because we are in Christ together. Christ is in the Father, the Father is in the Son. We are in Him, and so we are one with the Father and one with each other. That reality trumps all other differences that we have. But very seldom do we major on that and appreciate that. We want to major on the things that shouldn't separate us, and we allow them to separate us. So Jesus says, allow them to be one like we are one, like the Trinity models unity and diversity for us. So we need a model for the world unity and diversity. But here's another thing that stands out to me when I read that prayer. It almost suggests, Jesus almost suggests that unbelievers have a right to reject God's message if they don't see Christians loving each other and being unified. Unify us so that they may know, that they may know. Unify them, bring them together that they may know who we are, Father, that they may know us, that they may know God. Unify Christians. And if unbelievers do not see us unified, they almost have a right to reject what we say is good and right and pleasing. So there's a sense in which we need to be calling people from a dark world into the kingdom of God, and we need to model for them what that looks like. And our model is the Trinity. Our model is Jesus, the Father, the Holy Spirit. And they are not just sort of unified. They, they, they are unified. Our God is one. We need to be one, which is why there's an analogy of one body with many parts. When we call people into that and they see it outworked, it is a beautiful thing to be a part of. When we call them into that and we separate like the Celtics and the Rangers and we say, hey, listen, you might lose your life if you're on that side of the church. Nobody's going to want to be here. 
When believers are unified, it becomes a powerful force for good, shining a light into the dark world. When believers are unified, it creates a sense of belonging. It creates a community for people to be loved and to be supported and strengthened in their faith, enabling them to face challenges. In Acts chapter 2, verse 47, this is happening. Believers were selling stuff, sharing with each other, giving each other as they needed, encouraging each other in the faith. And it says, as they did this, they were brought together, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Because they were unified. They were keeping the first things, the first things, the main things, the main things. A divided church with non-essentials being the thing that divides them is a church that will be as Jesus described in Matthew chapter 12, a kingdom divided against itself. It will be a wasteland. It will be a city or a house that's divided against itself and it will not stand. This one thing I've seen to be true. The Lord will be okay with a church closing its doors and becoming a pub, a club, or a bed and breakfast, if that church does not extend the kingdom of God. God will not suffer the foolishness of people. God took a whole generation of people and allowed them to die out in the desert for 40 years and not inherit the promised land because they were not faithful to him. Only two of those original groups of people got through, Joshua and Caleb, because they were faithful to God. God will be okay with the church dying out because his kingdom and the extension of his kingdom is not dependent on you or me. And that's a really humbling thing. His will will be done and faithful people will be used. And if we choose to disunify over insignificant things, the doors of this church will eventually close because we will become a thorn in the flesh of the kingdom and God will rather do something else with faithful people who are willing to pursue unity. God will not allow his kingdom to be divided against itself. Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for all are one in Jesus. What the scripture is teaching is not that you stop being a Jew, stop being a Greek, stop being free, a slave, male or female. What it's saying is that's inconsequential when you consider that we are now sons and daughters of the king. Your identity is not slave or free. Your identity is not male or female. Your identity is not Jew or Greek. Your identity is son and daughter of the king because you are now redeemed by the king. That's, your priori- that's the priority when it comes to your identity. It's, it's understanding that. And so our identity is not, am I an amillennialist? Am I a premillennialist? Am I a pamillennialist? Am I this millennialist? No, your identity is a son and a daughter of the king, and that's where we find common ground. Being united with Christ gives us a new identity that supersedes our earthly ones and our theological differences. So how do we cultivate this unity? We've been called to it. How do we cultivate it? Especially when it comes to our eschatological differences. How do we cultivate unity there? Well, we must remember that the things we hold in common far outweigh the things that are different about our specific end-time views. Right, so in our church, like I said, we've got premillennialists, postmillennialists, amillennialists, and pamillennialists like me. These are the things that those different eschatological views hold in common. And you tell me whether you think they're important. All of those views hold these core things as true, regardless of the other things that are peripheral and make them unique from the next. These are the things they hold in common. They believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ. That was in the Nicene Creed. The ascension of our Lord into glory. That was in the Nicene Creed. The present high priestly ministry of Jesus. That was in the Nicene Creed. The future bodily and glorious return of Jesus. That was in the Nicene Creed. The resurrection of the dead. That was in the Nicene Creed. The fundamental judgment 
with the separation of the sheep and the goats, with the goats going into hell and the sheep going into heaven. That was in the Nicene Creed and the eternal realities of life in the new creation. That was in the Nicene Creed. Those are things we hold in common. All of those are core tenets of the different end-time views. Those are what we focus on when it comes to what we believe. And we can have healthy debates across the table with one another. That's encouraged. But when it comes to a vicious separation from one another because of silly, lesser doctrinal views and specifics about a different view, I think it becomes demonic. And the enemy uses it as a way to drive a wedge between Christians. And then the kingdom of God is not extended. When we hold these core tenets about our different end-time views, at the front and center of our minds, it doesn't matter how you interpret Mark 13 or Revelation 20, we'll all land on the same solid common ground and we'll differ in a few different things. Too many times, Christians have become too extreme and extremists have been birthed as a result of an unhealthy focus on eschatology and end times. Therefore, my prayer and our call as a leadership is that we put eschatology in its proper place as a church, beneath the core tenets of our faith, beneath our unity. Our unity is more important. The kingdom of God is more important than whether you believe the rapture is going to happen or not, whether we're in the thousand years or not, whether Jesus will reign for a literal thousand years or a metaphorical thousand years, whether the mark of the beast has come or is still to come. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's not not important. It doesn't matter. When it comes to unity, unity is more important. And these central things are what we need to focus on. How do we pursue this unity in general? Not just in our eschatological differences, but in life in general. Romans 14 verse 17. Paul says this, For the kingdom of God is not about a matter, it's not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. In, in, in Rome... The church in Rome was having an issue with differences. People thinking that they were culturally better than others. People thinking that they were religiously better than others. People thinking that because they ate certain things or because they drank alcohol that they were lesser or better than others. And Paul writes and he says, guys, the kingdom of God is not about these peripheral things. The kingdom of God is about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So what we need to do as a church is put aside our peripheral differences and pursue righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It starts with humility. It starts with forgiveness. It starts with treating each other with kindness and respect, seeking to understand and empathize with people. It comes with understanding that the person that you might have a difference with is a brother or sister in the Lord, bought at the same price, bought with freedom because of the grace of God, who serves the same king. In Colossians chapter 3, 12 through 13, it says this, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. That's an umbrella to help us describe how we should treat each other at all times, in all circumstances. Bear with one another and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. We need to be building bridges, not walls in the church. We need to be embracing diversity and celebrating the different gifts that we have and the talents that we have and the interpretations of Scripture that we have around minor issues. I can tell you sometimes my theology has been shifted and changed because someone else has understood something differently to me and pointed me to the fact that it was probably a better position that they held than what I held by engaging with me in a loving, kind, and gracious way. 
I've always said that I think 95% of my theology is correct. 5% of it is incorrect. I just don't know which 5%. Right? And that 5% is probably and most certainly is only around the non-essential doctrines, the lesser important ones. So I'm open to engage in conversation because I want my theology to change in lesser and less important issues if I'm wrong. I don't want to be wrong. I want to be right and I'm open to healthy debate. But where we ostracize each other and shun each other and cause division, we've become the tool of the enemy. Last scripture. We are all fallen and finite beings, and so we need to be humble and not think that we have a monopoly on truth or that we are greater theologians than what we really are. What we need to do is stand very strongly indeed for truth and the core central tenets of our faith, And we need to be humble and teachable in spirit when we do that. And a perfect example for us of that balance is Jesus himself. In the book of John chapter 1, it's one of my favorite descriptors of Jesus. It says this, The word, speaking about Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's the balance that we need to strike as his people. Grace for one another where we disagree but holding to the truth and not being afraid to teach it and preach it. I shared a message when I was over in the UK. I think people have sanitized Christianity. They've tried to make it more palatable. We have defaced the gospel so that we can get more people into the church in full pews. We've become afraid of taking a stance for truth because we're being persecuted and called all sorts of terrible things. We need to be bold and courageous and unafraid of the gospel and stand for truth, but we need to be gracious as we do it, and especially with each other. Gracious where we differ on non-essential issues. So how does that happen practically? Church, I think we need to be less independent and more interdependent on one another. We, we, we proclaim independence as like this really, really beautiful thing, and it is in many ways, but not in the church. Interdependence is more biblical. We need to have less competition and more cooperation. We need to move from competing against one another to complementing one another. Jason Humphreys, one of the pastors that used to be at the church, said this to me once. He's like, Rolls, the kingdom of God really impacted me and the Spirit really empowered me and filled me when I realized that my job is to celebrate Jesus in somebody else and not to compare myself to them all the time. Because then I'm free to receive from Jesus what they've been given to give to me. If I'm competing and comparing myself all the time to them, I can never properly receive. And I think that's what happens in the church with these lesser doctrines. We all want to be clever and pontificate and display our intellectual prowess and be great theologians who are remembered throughout their pages of time. And to do that, we trample on one another and stomp on one another and we forget the core tenets and we disunify. Appreciate what Jesus has put in somebody else. If they're a teacher, they're a teacher. If they're a preacher, they're a preacher. If they've got the gift of service, they've got the gift of service. Healing, prophetic ministry. I'm not going to run through the whole list, but whatever God has put into somebody, stop competing with it. Compliment it. Fan it into flame, because then you will be blessed. We need to have less ambition to lead. And I'm, I'm not talking about leadership being a bad thing. I'm talking about everybody wanting to lead. That, that, that age-old adage, there's too many cooks in the kitchen, it actually rings true. We need to stop having too much ambition to lead and more willingness to follow and serve. Less of a drive to dominate and more of an ability and willingness to develop and to build up. Less of a need to control and more of a willingness to contribute and facilitate. We need to be less self-seeking and self-serving and we need to focus more on empowering others to bring out for the kingdom what they've been called by God to bring out. We need to do less talking and more listening, less empire building, and more kingdom seeking. Amen.
So it's a real call to let go of the immaturity that exists so often in our lives where we hold on to things and separate ourselves from other people and think that they're lesser than us because of less important doctrines. Again, I don't think that that's us, right? But it's happening in the church. And we need to watch out for it and guard against it. And so to end off this morning, we're going to celebrate, like Grant said, the pinnacle or the climax of our time together this morning. That's remembering Jesus, the one in in, in whom we all have unity, the one who died for us, spilt his blood, broke his body, so that we could be called sons and daughters. And I pray that as we take communion, if there are people that you've offended with your pontificating and your preaching, if there are people that have offended you, that you would be willing to go and say sorry, that you'd be willing to forgive, and that you'd be willing to let go of the things that you think define you as an elite Christian or Bible interpreter. If there's anything else that you've held on to that has caused division, that you would go and say sorry, that you would repent, and that you would say before the Lord, God calls me to love these people more than I desire to be right. And let us unify around this table, and let us have God Bring people from the outside into this church because we are unified, rarely unified. I'm going to ask the people who are serving communion to come and serve, and I'm going to ask you to hold on to your cup and hold on to the bread. We're going to eat and drink together, and I know Trevi is going to tinkle on the ivories for us as it happens.